Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for August 23rd, 2018, the 8-count edition. We got the gang back together for one of the craziest weeks we've had, even in this crazy Trump presidency. Oh my goodness gracious. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. She was just showing us her spork, which was covered with her Hi. own hair, which was so gross. <laughs> so Wait a minute. That we did not need to convey that to people in the populace. And it was in my bag, my purse. I have hair that comes out. Okay. All right. That was John Dickerson of CBS this morning, rising to Emily Bazelon's defense. John's in New York. Hello, John. Hey. I, it's just I feel like we haven't done a show together in so long. No, but you sure know what it is. The, the, the space time continuum has been rended by the rapidity of the news cycle. That is that is well said. So on this week's Gabfest, such momentous news. We are going to devote two topics worth of time and discussion to the massive Tuesday convictions of Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen, as well as the news that White House Counsel Don McGahn has been talking lengthily with Robert Mueller's team. What is going to happen in the Mueller investigation? What is the political response to the convictions? Guilty plea is going to be. And so much more. Then the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination gets spicy. We'll talk about that. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, Slate Plus members, of course, get a bonus segment on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. On Slate Plus this week, a top Trump official invited a white nationalist publisher to his birthday party. Is that wrong? What should happen to him? Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member and get a chance to listen to that segment and other segments. Plus, one more quick announcement. As many of you know, we are going to Slate Day, a live podcast experience as part of the Texas Tribune Festival, where we and Trumpcast and Amicus and El GabFest and The Gist are all going to do podcasts, live podcasts in Austin on Saturday, September 29th at the Capitol Factory in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. There are no tickets left just for our show, but you can still you can still get a day pass, which gets you into our show plus all the other shows. There are a few of those left, and there's also a few tickets available for the happy hour where fans can meet me and other Slate podcasters and fellow fans. So go to slate.com slash live to get tickets, and we hope to see you in Texas. Rarely in GabFest history, the GabFest storied history. Have we had an event so momentous that we decided to devote two full topics to it, but rarely do we have a day or rather a minute or a 10-minute period like we did on Tuesday around 4.20 p.m. when former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort was convicted by a jury in Virginia of eight counts of fraud and tax chicanery at basically the very same moment, the very same moment, Trump lawyer fixer, which is a cool title. Michael Cohen pled guilty to eight counts of fraud, campaign finance misdeeds in a New York City court and admitted that he committed some of those campaign finance crimes at the behest of Donald Trump, who had him pay off Stephanie Clifford, a.k.a. Stormy Daniels, and Karen McDougal to silence them about their affairs and to protect him for the campaign. Also, by the way, came news this week that the White House counsel has spent more than 30 hours talking to Mueller and his team, apparently a surprise to people in the White House that Don McGahn was talking so vigorously. So, John, of these three stories, they're obviously all interrelated. Which of them is the most important? Which has the most implications for the country, for Donald Trump's, Trump's presidency, for uh, the election? 
Well, I, I guess because it directly brings the president on stage, I'd say it's the Cohen, uh, the Cohen plea deal. What we've had before in which the president is uh, referred to as individual one. And he is the person that, that Cohen, um, who is in a position to know, um, Cohen said directed him to break the law. So this isn't collusion. The president is on the periphery. Uh, Manafort's conviction, the much of it took place before he was ever uh, working with Donald Trump. But in this case, Donald Trump is in the center. He is a central actor in the drama. It also makes him effectively a uh, a co-conspirator, which which reinitiates the conversation about impeachment and what the sanction would be for uh, a president. It puts Republicans on the hook in a new way to give at least some um, remarks, let alone hearings. You remember the hearings that were held in, in uh, with respect to, say, Al Gore's attendance at a fundraiser at a Buddhist temple. Um, uh, there have been instances in which the behavior in fundraising by a president or a vice president was the subject of, of congressional hearings. And this is an instance in which that might be the case. Nobody's really said anything, but it does. It puts more uh, pressure on Republicans. And I think finally... Two things. It's a kind of it provides a can opener into some areas of Donald Trump's life that I that I think he would be worried about. I mean, clearly, Michael Cohen's job um, was to clean up things for for the president when he was a private citizen. And so he was in connection with some of the the most intimate secrets of Donald Trump's life. And so he apparently kept recordings. He had a lot of phones, kept a lot of records that can't make the president uh, confident. And also, if, if this ever gets into a legal proceeding or, in fact, if Congress uh, does get curious about um, criminal campaign finance violations. One of the things that's interesting is if the Trump Corporation paid the fine, did they then deduct it from the Trump Corporation taxes? If they did, that's an additional kind of crime. Uh, And one way you might seek to find out if that's the case is by looking at tax returns, which has been something of an issue uh, since Donald Trump has not provided his tax returns. So I think well, that whole cluster of things um, with the uh, the Cohen news is uh, why I think it's important and in a new way than, than the other investigations we've talked about. So, Emily, there's so many interesting legal questions, legal tributaries uh, that this Cohen case in particular raises. But first question for me is, why is Cohen pleading to something? Cohen does not appear on superficially to be cooperating with prosecutors. He doesn't appear to have gotten a deal in this plea agreement, at least not an explicit one. And he hasn't tried to fight all these charges. And he's just, you know, kind of very quickly uh, turned on his belly and and Hmm. exposed himself. Well, um, here's my theory. So for one thing, I think the government has a lot of documentary evidence um, implicating Cohen. They raided his office. They have his phone records. They have the files. So I think he was looking at, you know, some serious criminal liability. I bet there is room to pile on more charges in state court um, as well as federal court and that he knows that and those charges are hanging out there as um, reason to cooperate, even though there isn't an explicit benefit. And so if you're the prosecutors, you can sort of have you have a win-win situation where you have um, an indicted suspect who's eager to become a cooperating witness who knows 
there is some exposure out there, but there is no explicit deal. And so if that person takes the stand at the moment, they're going to be able to say to the jury, I didn't get anything explicit from that. Now, of course, like in this hypothetical trial moment, um, the defense attorney for whoever uh, is being charged, who uh, Cohen is testifying against, namely in some hypothetical landscape, uh, Donald Trump, that lawyer would bring out the additional possible charges. They would try to make it seem as if this person had an incentive to exaggerate um, and lie anyway. But I think it's still of some benefit to um, Cohen's potential credibility on the stand that he's not receiving a quid pro quo here. So, John, Cohen famously said he would take a bullet for Trump. Now it seems to be shooting one at him. What, why do you think Cohen has has apparently ditched the possibility of a pardon and ditched the possibility of like sort of going to trial, delaying everything and and waiting for the president to help him out and instead is is throwing himself on the hopefully the mercy and goodwill of prosecutors? Well, I think the Wall Street Journal had a, an extensive piece uh, about this, um, which included uh, his father um, counseling him, um, his father um, as a Holocaust survivor uh, counseling him um, uh, not to kind of go down for this president, uh, President Trump. Uh, also, I think there was the chance that um, that he could have faced as many as 20 criminal counts. Um, so uh, this is to Emily's point. There was some stuff maybe left off the table. I think his wife might have been um, possibly uh, on the hook because of um, – uh, uh, she she filed some of these tax returns jointly, um, so he so that may very well have been a part of why um, he agreed, you know, to keep her out of this. Um, so those I think are, those may be some of the reasons. And it's important to remember that a prosecution in state court is not something that Trump has the power to pardon. Right, right. So Emily, just to answer a question, which I know anyone who's watched cable news over the last few days and has already heard answered. Oh, great. Now uh, what if I don't know the answer? You said well, the, no, it's an obvious question. <laughs> it's like, why if the president, so, so Michael Cohen worked for the president. And so if you believe Michael Cohen, that he went and made payoffs in order to keep Stephanie Clifford and Karen McDougal silent effectively, he was not doing, he didn't do it presumably out of the goodness of his heart. And he didn't want to spend $280,000 of his own money just to do this. He was doing this because he was ordered to by his boss, Donald Trump. So under normal circumstances, you would think the guilty party or the guiltier party and the person who should be indicted is the person who is causing this this crime to be committed. So why is President Trump not being indicted if, if Michael Cohen has been indicted? Well, we have this um, norm, this internal Department of Justice policy that the president cannot be indicted. And it comes not from the text of the Constitution I personally would argue that the text of the Constitution suggests that a sitting president can be indicted and tried. But certainly it is true that the Constitution in its text does not resolve this question. So in 1973, when Robert Bork, who people I'm sure remember as an unsuccessful Supreme Court nominee, but before that, he was at listen the Department Listen to Whistle Stop this I was going to say, get Bork. on. Oh, I'm so excited to go listen to that. That's such a great episode. Excellent. Okay. Um, so... Robert Bork was at the Department of Justice, and he wrote a memo in 1973 saying that for structural reasons in the Constitution, a sitting president could not be indicted and tried. And his thinking was that the president sits at the top of the whole federal law enforcement 
bureaucracy. And so he's the boss of the prosecutors. So how can they try him? And that kind of caught on that idea, caught on with some, though not all, legal historians. And then it was um, affirmed, if that's the right word, by uh, some other Department of Justice memos in 2000. So it's become, I would argue, received wisdom. I don't find it at all compelling, and here's why. So first of all, it's not a result dictated by the text of the Constitution. Um, But more importantly, I don't think it gets us to a good place as a country. It means that a sitting president is above the law and that impeachment, which is a political remedy, is also the only remedy. And I just don't think that there is enough benefit in that. I mean, I see the problem of prosecutors run amok. And obviously, in the country's struggle, since Watergate in particular, to figure out how to be able to investigate the president um, within, you know, helpful parameters, um, i.e. not like, you know, these very distracting investigations that in the end seem like they really didn't go anywhere or weren't worth it. That is a real problem. But I just think that having the president above the law in this way is destructive and that we're seeing exactly that play out right now. It is very strange to have someone um, implicating the president in directing a serious campaign finance violation and knowing that that president thinks he's immune from prosecution is having all these weird ramifications. I also think it's important to remember that If these allegations are true, then President Trump could be the first president who goes to jail after he leaves office, because exactly how is the government going to not prosecute him if they think they can back up these claims? Emily, does the the bar on indicting a president or the implicit bar on indicting a president apply to state prosecutors? Um, well, I mean, I think the way it, I mean, no, technically the Department of Justice internal policy memos doesn't bind state prosecutors to anything. You know, I think there are huge political barriers to a state prosecutor bringing such a case and all of the resources for, um, you know, this particular investigation are in the Southern District of New York, a federal prosecutor's offices, and then have, you know, ties to Mueller's special counsel investigation. So I think pragmatically that's not happening. But no, I don't think there's a formal barrier. But um, just before we move off of Cohen at all, I've made this point before and I realize it's unpopular, but I just want to say it again. I understand that it is a campaign finance crime to try to influence the election and and to use uh, unreported funds and actions to to influence the election uh, by buying the silence of Stephanie Clifford and Karen McDougal. I do also, however, come back to some sympathy for Trump in this situation. I don't see why the the fact that he had a consensual extramarital adulterous affair with with women long before he was running for office, long before he was president. And these women were implicitly threatening to go public with it at a moment when he was very vulnerable. Was he, though? Don't you think that was a wrong miscalculation on his part? The story sort of came out. I don't actually think it would have cost him the election. Continue Well, it might not have have cost him the election, but you could imagine him thinking it would cost him the election. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I just feel like in the— It's it's pejorative private information about him. Yeah. And it doesn't have to do with his fitness for public— Well, I guess it may— 
may have something to do with this fitness <laughs> or public office, but it doesn't ha- directly have to do with his sort of his policy positions or anything he was doing in the campaign. It's it's old news about his personal behavior and the idea that they can come forward and that he can't I, look. It's, he can't I, silence I, I, them. He can't, he can't pay them off. He can't pay them to off. silence it's, them to influence an election. You think that's you, wrong? I think it is wrong. Also, you can't pay. I think it is totally wrong that you cannot pay someone off to to not reveal information that's pejorative about you. I think you ought to be allowed to do that. Eve, so, I don't but think he could have done and it's that. Blackmail. It's blackmail to go to someone and say, "I have information that's going to damage you. You ha- need to give me money." That is blackmail. Right. He could have paid them off were it not for the fact that he was trying to influence the election. Right. I mean, John Edwards was not convicted for a parallel. Um, set of accusations because the prosecutors couldn't prove that it, he arranged these payoffs that his donors paid off his um, the real hunter uh, because he was trying to influence an election. So it's it's only the influence the election part that is illegal, right? Doesn't that change the calculus? Well, for you? It, there's also he, there's one other thing which is conspiring to conceal the contribution, which is a secondary. Event, yeah, but, but it's also another thing he did wrong. <laughs> right. Not, not, no, I understand it's related, but it's not just one thing he did wrong. He didn't yeah. just uh, – he also conspired to conceal it. Right, the no, cover-up. Yes, you would conspire to cover it up. I mean once you, once you presume that you had to make this payoff, you're also going to cover it up because if you don't cover it up, you've effectively – Revealed the fact of the payoff and thus the existence of the underlying facts. So let me it's, ask you. But that, but that is, of course, it is a crime. I understand it's a crime. And, and in the context of the election, it is a, it's a felony. And, but of all the things that Trump is accused of, of all the, the kinds of possible felonious behavior he's engaged in, including all the emolument stuff and the self-enrichment, this is the only one I've ever felt any sympathy for him about. <laughs> well, of all the things I think is like a perfectly good argument, and I personally am in favor of learning more about all the things from more, um, you know, as Mueller discloses more of what he's got. Uh, however... I have so little sympathy and for your argument. And the main reason is that, well, so first of all, the power imbalance of, you know, this incredibly wealthy man having these affairs with these women, not telling his wife about it, then expecting like there's just not ever going to be any um, liability, any bad any bad consequence of any kind like i just my heart does not bleed for people in that situation well you don't know what their marriage is like you don't know what you i know don't they care have. really i feel like this is a situation where we know we are talking about someone incredibly rich quite powerful even before he was the president and recklessly irresponsible the other thing is there are particular facts about this situation that make me less, less sympathetic you know according to the wall street journal cohen presumably and Trump, refused to pay off um, at least one of the two women in September. It was only in October that they went for this. And that just makes you think, okay, this really was about the election. In September, maybe Trump, who is notoriously a cheapskate and also must have realized that paying this hush money was questionable on some level. He didn't want to take the risk and do it. And then in October, he did. And that just seems like now we're really in the realm of messing around with our elections. The the uh, Access Hollywood tapes um, disclosure uh, hastened the mm-hmm. and changed the the arrangement. 
David, you so David, you're in the in the realm of the should versus you know whether this should be a crime in the in the abstract. I would note, by the way, that one set of people who do and have consistently and historically held the different view from the one you hold, which is that this is extremely important information to judge the character of the candidate, happened to be uh, the major, uh, uh, not maybe not the majority, but a substantial and significant and very powerful uh, portion of the constituency that ultimately elected the president. So uh, that's worth noting, including uh, the, the vice president of the United States, who's, uh, who's argued um, repeatedly that the moral character of the people we're electing is dispositive of their uh, conduct as president. And so what I wonder is, if you have a whole bunch of voters who hold that view, whether they should or shouldn't hold that view, uh, then is it right to deprive them of this information? Whether I hold that view or not is immaterial, but I'm just saying um, there are a lot of people f- who don't hold your view, David, who believe uh, that knowing that kind of behavior is crucial in understanding something about the candidate. Yeah, no, I sure. And I, I actually, I'm enough of a moralist to agree. I think it's, I think a person who is so recklessly and, and grotesquely uh, cheating on his spouse, that's something worth knowing. That's a, that's a, damning fact but i also similarly feel like there's it's private it's basically private behavior i, I hold this? both thoughts if you at once it's private to, if you want to pay off your mistress in this situation you don't also get to run for president right like Why? He, you can yeah. have the payoff you can it can be legal to pay this hush money but you don't simultaneously get to run for election why? and try to influence the election well, well then why would you pay off your mistress if you're not if you're not well, then, but then it's not about <laughs> embarrassing private information it's about winning the office like you're trying to have it both ways no well yes of course um, can i say one more <laughs> thing before we move on if indeed we are somehow doing that Duncan Hunter. So we're not even oh having a special. Do we, wait. Wait. Oh my god! <laughs> hold on, <laughs> hold okay, on. Have we so squeezed like everything cup. from this turnip, though. No, oh, definitely. We haven't even got hit Manafort and McGann. We have a lot, and the impeachment. No, there's so much okay. more. Uh, okay. But, go, right. but, but make I, your Duncan. I'm going to put. Yeah. I, I insist on bringing up Duncan Hunter right now. So Duncan Hunter, California Republican congressman, the second person who in Congress who endorsed Donald Trump following Chris Collins, who's also under indictment, just was using his campaign funds as a piggy bank, paying for everything. It's just like a torrent of humiliating information. And what struck me reading this is that we are at a moment where partly, I think, because the FEC, the um, Federal Elections Commission, is dysfunctional, there just doesn't seem to be campaign finance regulation anymore in ways that people fear. I mean, the hunters were doing this for years. They just must have had like a credit card that just ran straight into the campaign funds and they just used it indiscriminately. And it reminds me of the allegations um, that the New York State Attorney General's office has brought against the Trump organization, where similarly, you just see a total mixing and blurring of the lines. I mean, (laughs) so when I was in law school and I uh, took the bar, God knows why, and I had to pass the ethics test that everybody has to take, the joke as you're studying for that is like the one answer you never check is anything about commingling funds. Like, no, you do not commingle <laughs> funds. That's never the right answer. This is like we are living in a world of politicians commingling funds, and it's really bad. That's that's great. I love that. That's such a great answer. Uh, hey, um, so, one quick thing, Emily, on the question of civil, um, was Clinton versus Jones, didn't the Supreme Court just say you can, as a president, be um, subject to civil litigation in federal court? Indeed, that, the was Supreme that the Court question did. David asked? Yes, they rejected yeah, okay. all of the arguments about how distracting it was going to be. 
Yes. Right. So he still has exposure in civil court. Yes. The president. Oh, and he's being sued on multiple fronts in civil court. I mean, one interesting question is whether the Stormy Daniels litigation is now going to have a better shot at getting some of the tax returns. That's interesting. So, John, let's go on to um, quickly about Manafort. And then then I want to get to the political implications of this. So Manafort at the very same moment is, of course, being convicted of eight of the 18 counts. He was charged with 10, uh, 10. 10, the jury didn't reach a verdict, but it's incredibly, incredibly uh, damning conviction on these crimes that are not related to the Trump campaign. Uh, Manafort now faces a second trial in Washington, D.C. next month. Uh, so it is pr- pretty clear that Trump is signaling to Manafort, hey, I'm you, a pardon might be in the offing. He, he, he called him very brave. He said Manafort didn't break. He said flipping in the way that Cohen did, you know, ought to be illegal, which is just in itself. It's incredible that the president of the United States is saying these things about prosecution. But is it your sense that that uh, the Manafort conviction has large implications for Mueller investigation or not necessarily? Well, I think it has I think it has implications in the sense of the public um, sort of mojo behind the special counsel. I mean, you've had a coordinated and consistent campaign by the president to um, delegitimize the special counsel with very little pushback from anybody in authority within his party or, or, um, well, really, other than in the opposition. So the president's been trying to set up this situation where it seems like, obviously, we've heard the repetition of the word witch hunt, um, which, uh, and it was, it was, it was, it was um, uh, amusing to to hear both the president and his, uh, and his spokeswoman, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, talk about no collusion in response to the Cohen and Manafort news. Because, of course, neither of those two had anything to do with the question of collusion, which is still open. Um, But what interests me about the Manafort case is that, you know, that, that it was a, a kind of public relations victory in addition to a legal victory for Mueller. Um, and there, and, and so that's good since he's got a lot more work to do. I was, the thing that struck me the most is there was a juror who has spoken, uh, about the experience, Paula Duncan. And she said in an interview with Fox, basically, I did not want Paul Manafort to be guilty, she said, uh, but he was, and no one's above the law. So it was our obligation to look through all the evidence. She um, voted for Trump. She's a supporter of Trump's, uh, I think was even photographed in a MAGA hat. And here's what strikes me is that it, is that on the one hand, you have this juror um, who, given all the evidence, patiently went through it. She said on the 10 counts that were uh, considered a mistrial, it was just basically one juror who said that they had not been convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. Any of us who've been in, in uh, jury rooms are, are probably familiar with that one it's juror. It's amazing that awesome. 12 people agree on anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because also the reasonable doubt standard, like Hi. for some people, it's like, well, I doubt, you know, you can be doubtful about anything, even the nose on your face if you're of a certain mindset. But anyway, leaving that aside, I, what was interesting was Paula Duncan's view, which is basically, I didn't want him to be guilty. I'm a supporter of the president's, but this is what the facts said. Put that up against what you just said the president said, which is really extraordinary in a couple of different instances. I should just read just very quickly his the answer that Trump gave on uh, to Fox on Wednesday night. He was asked if he was considering a pardon for Paul Manafort, which all of these warm statements about Manafort would certainly seem to signal, although he's not engaged directly with the question. But this was his response, or the beginning of it anyway. It went on at some length. I have great respect for what he's done in terms of what he's going through. You know, he worked for Ronald Reagan for years. He worked for Bob Dole. He worked, I guess, his firm worked for McCain. 
I should parenthetically note there that this is uh, the president has been reluctant to mention McCain's name in other instances, but here he's a character witness for Manafort. He worked for many, many, many people for many years, and I would say that what he did, some of the charges they threw against him, every consultant, every lobbyist in Washington probably does. He's making excuses for somebody who's uh, just been convicted of a crime. He's saying basically everybody does it. You might remember that this was a candidate whose signature, arguably, one of his top campaign issues was the swamp in Washington. And now he's basically saying, well, everybody does it. And the campaign chairman I had was doing it, too. And, you know, that's no big deal. He also said that he didn't think that um, he thought maybe it should be illegal for witnesses to be able to flip. This, of course, is how prosecutors build major cases. You get the small fish. You say, we'll make a deal with you. That's how you get people to testify. That's how you prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. And there are all kinds of problems with coercing guilty pleas by um, piling on charges and uh, imposing big, threatening big sentencing hikes if you take a case to trial. But <laughs> the idea that prosecutors can't build cases by flipping witnesses is, it's just, it doesn't make sense. And what I find so um, amazing about all of this last week and Trump's responses is the utter denigration and disregard for rule of law when it applies to him and people who are close to him, while meanwhile he is doing all the usual fear-mongering about, you know, people he doesn't like who are committing crimes. Um, it's just a completely breathtakingly different set of rules depending on how you're situated. It is indeed. So that we have this remarkable fact. His national security advisor, his lawyer – and fixer, his campaign manager and his deputy campaign manager have now all been, you know, we're, we're less than two years into this presidency. They've all been convicted of crimes. It's extraordinary. We're and only we just getting started. And, and and then I think you would. it's worth saying also talking about um, Pruitt and Price who've had to resign. Oh. Um, and then all the yeah. people who've either been fired, oh. resigned, or, or had to quit. Um, it's an extraordinary uh, count of... Um, of either straight-up criminality or um, incompetence or uh, ethical questions. Really, it's quite a record to amass in such a short period of time. We're number one. Khakiistocracy. So, Isn't that that uh, word for the worst people yeah, running the government? Yeah, khakiistocracy, exactly. So let's turn a little bit to the political implications. Um, there's been a lot of gloatation on the left this week. Uh, and even you've seen never-Trumpers. Brett Stevens had a remarkable column in The Times on Wednesday or Thursday, saying he now sees the case for impeachment of this lawless president. Conservatives who impeached Bill Clinton for much less should be asking themselves why they're not standing up to impeach this president now. Uh, so there are two big questions, which is one is how how does this news play in the election? What do Democrats do? How do Democrats campaign with it? What do, how do Republicans play defense against it? That's number one. Number two is if we presume that the Democrats capture the House, which they may, should there be, will there be an, a push to impeach the president? So, John, how do you see the the Cohen case and the Manafort case affecting the election? Well, it it, it produces and can it, it means that basically, and not that this is a surprise, but there's going to be constant revelations and things along these lines from now until uh, election day. I think it it adds some, and we'll talk about this in the Brett Kavanaugh uh, discussion, but I think it adds some interesting and complicated questions to his nomination battle. Now, that nomination battle, and I'll 
is going to be very important in 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 November. I think in terms of um, ginning up the base, reminding the base of why uh, it's important to have somebody in the White House from their party, or at least controlling the Senate, uh, and that you could imagine working out politically in an interesting way that turn that does a version of what it did in 2016, which is there are a lot of Republicans I talked to who found Donald Trump objectionable, but the idea that he could name a Supreme Court pick was what um, ultimately caused them to vote for him. In addition, obviously, to a disliking Hillary Clinton, but they really focused on that court piece. But moving beyond that, um, I think it depresses, you know, those suburban women who um, who uh, are in those districts in the House, uh, the 60 plus districts that are up for grabs in the House um, that, that Republicans need to turn out for them. I think they, you know, it's more just administration nightmare that is that is continuing to press their vote. And I think it's uh, one more sign for why Democrats are going to be enthusiastic because they see it as a way to to um, to to have a break on this president. I think st- strategically for Democrats, their strategy seems to be, and it seems to be a smart one, is to basically not talk about impeachment and not talk about a revenge on the president for two smart reasons. One, everybody else is talking about it, so why why waste why waste the time make it look like something that you're not that doesn't have a liberal cast to it secondly um the democratic party has a real task ahead of it to remind voters about what they believe in and why they should be given the keys to the to the uh to the government um and what that means for them in their lives and reconnecting a democratic message with the experience of of people uh, and so uh that's probably what democrats should um spend their time on uh in their races do, do you think, either one of you, that while the Democrats shouldn't talk about impeachment, I think almost every strategist on the left thinks don't talk about impeachment now. It's just a, it's bad politics. Whether or not you intend to move for impeachment in 2019, don't talk about it now. But there's a side argument, which is you should talk about corruption, however. Yes. With Duncan Co- yes. Co- Hunter, with Collins, with with Price, with Manafort, with with Cohen, there's this theme of enormous corruption and that that is a that's a winning topic for Democrats, I, Emily or John. Go ahead. I'm just super quickly going to jump in because I should shut up. But I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think there's a policy way to talk about uh, corruption that, it, that connects this notion of corruption to the specific outcomes for people in their daily lives. Emily. I completely agree. That seems to me like something that should be able to transcend politics and isn't divisive the way I think talking about impeachment still is. I do think it's also important to recognize something that um, I was reading, I'm pretty sure a Dana Milbank column that did a good job of making this point, that there's a circularity to the Republican circle the bandwagons where you have the electorate, the Republican polling still very high in its support for President Trump, the leaders, Republican leaders in Congress, you know, holding out, supporting him and the right-wing media, and they're all, you know, reinforcing each other. The electorate isn't going to move until Congress moves, but Congress is afraid to move because they're in this um, frozen, entrenched position before the election. And so I do think that while it's dangerous for Democrats to be politically emphasizing impeachment, that, you know, it's still disappointing at the same time to see Republicans being so unwilling to hold accountable a president, which where we have a set of facts, we know exactly what these same people would be saying if the um, party tags were reversed. There's a friend of mine, a Republican friend of mine I was talking to yesterday made such an, I thought, interesting observation. She was uh, talking about why she was sad there weren't more better anti-Trump Republican candidates running. 
And, and she was saying that there's this bad situation where you have the only forces restraining Trump are the forces within the administration that you have people maybe in the Defense Department or in, in the State Department uh, who are acting as a break on the president. And con- people in con- Republicans in Congress are not acting as a break. But that's actually reversed, that what you should have is you should have a legislature that acts as a break and people in the administration who are acting to fulfill the executive desires. But Congress, the, the blocking function is in the wrong place right now and that we need to get, we need to get uh, people in Congress who are willing to, to do what the kind of thing that, say, Jim Mattis and his team is trying to do. Right. I mean, I think another way to think about these questions, which are about structural matters of like how the different branches of government should and do operate, is that what we're seeing right now is the law enforcement branch do a pretty good job and the judiciary, too. It You know, part of this is just that even when you bring in political appointees, even as you begin to have an enormous effect on the courts, you don't come in as a president and immediately transform everyone into a diehard Trump supporter. They're all the career officials at the Department of Justice and elsewhere through the federal agencies. And a lot of judges, obviously, were appointed by other presidents. And then you have, I think, the press flawed in many ways, but like very forcefully um, doing its job, reporting what's happening, at least if you um, turn the channel away from Fox News. And what you don't have is the second branch of government doing its job. And so if you believe that the third branch plus the press and the public are strong enough, then it's less problematic that Congress is um, so – dramatically failing. But it, but it, if you are worried about the robustness of the other institutions, it starts to seem much more troubling that Congress is doing what it's doing. And of course, all of this just makes the November elections overridingly important. And that is both like clear and I guess good because it's the electorate's chance to weigh in. But it's also a little scary whenever you feel like one set of elections are so important, especially what we know about all these efforts to hack and influence them in illegal ways. John, do you think, I know you're you're a wary prognosticator, but <laughs> there there's a very strong possibility that Democrats will control the House. It's very unlikely they will control the Senate. They certainly will not have 67 votes in the Senate to convict a, a president who might have been impeached by the House by a House majority. Uh, do you think that Democrats ought to be seriously contemplating whether the president should be impeached? Should, do you think that's going to be a, a main article of business if they control the House? You mean publicly? Well, at that point, it'd be publicly as opposed to just privately. Well, yeah. I think you you do have you do have something you have to wrestle with. Just I think as a matter of law, and Emily, you you. Uh, Get me back in my lane here if I'm wrong. But, I mean, he is essentially an unindicted co-conspirator in the Cohen matter. Yep. So that has to be dealt with. There's no – some people – well, we've already talked about whether a president can be indicted. But, I mean, if it's the, if it's the feeling he can't be, then, then what's the remedy for that? Um, so you don't need to go all the way to that remedy – the impeachment remedy to investigate what the what the Dickens was going on. So that's the first question is whether they they say, all right, well, let's start investigations just to see whether, you know, um, the extent of the of the criminality here, uh, criminality from a source who's a paid known famous liar, but who also had, which is say Michael Cohen, but who also had access to this stuff in part because he was a liar. So like he's an uncredible witness, but he also has tapes and documents. So that would be one way to kind of put the toe in the water. Um, 
but I think that um, and but but I I think that by the time let's imagine for a moment that the Democrats win, you know the Mueller investigation is going to carry its own steam. Um, when that arrives, it will either provide a good deal of of evidence, and that will kind of kick off the the question of whether impeachment is valid or not, or given all of the weight that Democrats have put in Mueller's hands, if he comes back and says, you know, there really was isn't anything there, then I think that'll actually be something of an impediment to Democrats um, in terms of, uh, or it certainly will, will create some questioning within the um, within the Democratic ranks, because you're going to have a lot of Democrats who came to Washington by being elected in districts where it's still pretty close. You know, their electorate is not full of... Um, uh, of people who want to spend a lot of time on impeachment. Um, and so there will be some internal fighting. And I think that, um, and oh, by the way, then you're going to have, um, you, you're going to have this other cross pressure, which is Democratic candidates running for president who are going to be very heavy on the pro impeachment because it, it, it's a kind of an easy way to show that you're more anti-Trump than thou in a big primary field where it's sometimes hard to, sh- to make distinctions. Um, and I'm not quite sure how all that plays out, but those are some of the forces that will be roiling. Emily, before we leave this, do you have any uh, wisdom to impart about Don McGahn? I find it so hard to understand what is going on with the Don McGahn is talking to Mueller stories. And I was hoping you could just explain. So I think that it's pretty troubling what Don McGahn did. Um, I think he has a conflict of interest and that um, the weird distortions and distrust in the Trump administration led to some really problematic behavior and outcomes. Um and I'm stealing this um, from a couple of people, and now I can't remember who I'm stealing this from. I like just for Forget visuals, it. listeners. Emily looks very troubled. She <laughs> actually troubled. It was she, like she had like she's she's really furrowed, and she's like got her hand running her hand up and down her brow in a way that makes her look so troubled. I I remembered. It's Bob Bauer who um, wrote a good piece about this in Lawfare, and then Noah Feldman picked up out on it um, in a column for Bloomberg. Okay. So here was the argument they were making. The White House counsel is an institutional actor. He is defending – he's supposed to be representing the interests of the White House. Now, he's not the personal lawyer of the president. There is some tension there. But as the institutional guardian of the White House, he should be concerned about turning over lots of information and documents without – really thinking through carefully whether to exercise the privilege. So what happened in this case was Trump's former lawyers, the ones he's now fired, um, Dowd and Cobb, they were in favor of this, like, lots of cooperating with Mueller's team strategy. And it implicated the institutional interests of the White House in terms of when you decide that you're going to withhold things, when you're going to safeguard documents um, and keep them more confidential. So McGahn, you know, because the president's lawyers were saying to turn over all this stuff, he did. Then at the same time, though, he and Trump were having what sounds like a pretty tempestuous relationship. And so as Trump's lawyers were telling him to go ahead and testify, he was worried that he was being set up to take the fall for obstruction of justice um, and related matters. And because of that concern, it seems, he was incredibly forthcoming with Mueller's team. And that's not good. Like, lawyers should not be testifying effectively um, 
not just against their client, but in a way that's in conflict with the institutional interests of the White House, which they represent, um, because they're worried about their own skin in the game. I feel like that's it's a fairly subtle point, and in all of the you know legal travails and ills. Um, and problems we have. It's not the thing that's paramount in my mind, but it doesn't seem to me like he really um, did this in a way that was the most ethical choice for him as a lawyer. Well, Is that at all helpful a, or just a complicated it, tangle? Well, let me uh, ask a follow-up question in the hopes of tangling it up further, which is um, let's imagine that his motive was uh, to save himself. But that in the furtherance of that motive, all he did was give um, a contemporaneous account of what happened. Essentially went in and told the truth. Here's what happened on this date. Um, Just basically laid it out there. A, do you find that objectionable by the terms of what you just outlined? And B, what if he knew in so doing uh, for a president who um, often embroiders what he has said at the start of a sentence by the time he's at the end of it? If did he knowingly, by basically just saying the truth of what happened, the timelines, did he knowingly set a trap for his client who he knows amends his views and that therefore that would be a problem? Right. I mean, those are great questions. I hope I'm not going to bungle this. If you just go back to like basic lawyer ethics 101 that applies to everybody, whether or not you're the White House counsel or the president's lawyer, you're only allowed to um, violate the attorney client confidentiality if um, you think it it doesn't say that you shall violate it. It says the rules say you may violate it if you think there is an imminent threat of bodily harm or like ongoing fraud. Now, the thing about the privilege is that it belongs to the client, i.e. Donald Trump. So if Trump was waiving it, McGahn didn't have any reason to um, insist on it, except that he has this separate institutional interest as the White House lawyer. And I mean, maybe there's some strong justification for what he did here, given the public's interest in learning the truth and the problems with, you know, Trump's fabrications you were just outlining, John. But I just think it's complicated. Yes. Final, final question on this, then we will really leave this, although I'm sure we'll come back. We have had so many huge Trump stories, huge stories, which you thought like, wow, this is really it. Wow, this is it. You know, he's fired. He's fired Comey. There's Charlottesville. There's there's, you know, probably 20 incidents in the last 18 months where where a lot of the the political commentating class has been so shocked and thought this is surely a, a sea change. Again, I heard somebody uh, on television this today saying that Tuesday may go down as the most consequential one of the most consequential days in, in American political history because of these two convictions. And and that set my uh, 15 antenna, antennae and feelers going. Isn't it possible that in a week, just, you know, given the churn, given the chaff, that this is all gone? Well, the... the no, because it's going to keep unfolding. I mean, if it stopped here and this was it and Mueller said, you know what, I didn't find anything else, then yeah, maybe. But I don't think the chances of that are high. Yeah, I think I think that's right. One of the things we've seen on what we saw on Tuesday that is in a world of hot takes and Twitter uh, and evanescent um, moving on on, you know, in other news outlets, um, the slow wheels of justice grind on. And whether that is the 
uh, jurors in the Manafort case who looked at the evidence, made their decision, whether it's the judge in the Manafort case who was not uh, favorably disposed to the prosecutor's case, um, but did so based on his own views of the norms of, of the way you're supposed to carry out a, uh, or, and conduct a trial, to whatever norms the, the Mueller team is following, which keep them from leaking in the way that some journalists might hope, but that they amazingly haven't in a lot of cases. Um, you know, he's pretty much stuck to his... Um, uh, to his work quietly and patiently and methodically, that also seems to have been the case in the Cohen in the Cohen matter. So that track, you know, whatever's going to be rolling down that track is going to continue to roll on, and that track seems to be separate from the cyclotron that that we sometimes get stuck in, which is uh, you know the other the other pace of things. Can you get a cyclotron going down a track? Will can an engineer weigh in on that? That would be, it would be a lot of forces moving in different directions. It would be pretty exciting. If it went off the rails at that point, there could be things just flying everywhere. Huh. Sounds like a pretty good metaphor for the situation the country's in. <laughs> this episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation hearings are supposed to start in early September. Senate Republicans seek to keep them on a NASCAR-type schedule, fast start, fast finish with a vote, says Mitch McConnell, uh, in early October, I believe. He wants a confirmation vote. Yet, there are interesting developments on three fronts. First of all, uh, starting from smallest to biggest, maybe. A memo has emerged from the Starr investigation in which Kavanaugh, then a young prosecutor on Starr's team, argued for asking President Clinton extremely sexually explicit questions about Monica Lewinsky. Second, there's a fight over what Kavanaugh-related documents are being released. Only a teeny fraction of the millions and millions of documents he dealt with in his long government service, particularly when he was in the White House as the staff secretary to President Bush, have been released in most cases only after a former colleague of his, a former person who used to work for him, who also was Don McGahn's lawyer, a guy named Bill Burke, vets them. Uh, and third, Democrats are trying to figure out whether, how they can make the issue of the Kavanaugh confirmation uh, a blocker. Can they can they stop it? Can they should they try to stop it at a time when the president is in such legal distress? Should the president get a vote on his Supreme Court nominee and? I think politically, the Democrats are not even sure where they want to go, what the best outcome would be for them at the moment. So, uh, Emily, let me throw it to you. What, what of these, which, where do you want to start with this? 
Well, one thing that um, interested me about the um, memo of Kavanaugh's about the incredibly graphic Lewinsky questions he wanted to ask Bill Clinton was the introduction to it in which in a very strong, vehement, forthright way, he talked about he just expressed his disgust that Clinton was lying and the importance of taking him to task for it and asking him these questions, you know, in a way that would have been pretty humiliating for a sitting president in order to expose him as a liar. You just feel in those paragraphs in the memo, like this is what Brett Kavanaugh really thinks. And it just it's going to be amazing to watch him as a Supreme Court justice wrestle with what position to take if he is in a position of, you know, sitting in judgment in some way about Trump's lying. Uh, It also made me wonder, you know, years ago after he was no longer working on the Clinton investigation, uh, Kavanaugh wrote a law review article in which he expressed very carefully, he expressed doubts about investigations of the presidency. And it's, I'm sure, a crucial uh, part of of why Trump was willing to nominate him. But I, it made me wonder if that article itself was written by an ambitious um, person thinking ahead to his own judicial career because it, it, it's sort of perfectly situated in this kind of neither taking a completely strong position against investigations because he really frames it all in terms of what he thinks Congress should do. Um, and I've noticed this in some of other Kavanaugh's, Kavanaugh writings, you know, when he's talking about whether a sitting president could be um, indicted and tried under the Constitution, he calls it debatable. There are just all these ways where you can, I think, kind of see that he had his eye on the prize and was being very careful. Yeah, he's obviously a sail trimmer in that way. Yeah. But I, I actually I want to pause for a moment of sympathy around that memo that he wrote to Starr when he was a 33-year-old prosecutor. It was very passionate. It was Clearly, Starr decided that was the wrong strategy and didn't didn't take Kavanaugh's advice. And Kavanaugh himself apparently had regrets about it. But I thought it was like I like justified. That. I thought, like why ju- not? not? Well, I think it's that's your place if you're a member of the staff and and if, if Starr is running an effective staff where he wants to hear you know a wide range of opinions and he wants to hear arguments passionately made. I think Kavanaugh made made a, a passionate case, and I can also see. In, in part because I feel like I myself have gone through some of that same that same mellowing of age is that I certainly felt at the time, you know, I felt outrage and disgust at Clinton's behavior, which I still I still do feel outrage and disgust at Clinton's behavior. But I can imagine that you you the way you feel that as a 33 year old newly married person is quite different from the way you might co- sort of more contemplatively think about that same same thing as a 50 year old many years later. And I and and I don't well, I would not I don't think I don't think it would be fair to hold him to the views that he expressed there to say, oh my God, look at this outrageous thing he's doing. He was working for somebody else. He was, you know, floating something and and that's that's his job. I would like to delink the question of uh this writing from the uh from its purient nature. What he seemed to be extremely exercised about, separate and apart from the fact that it it was in connection with all of this physical uh, sexual activity, was the fact that the president was lying. Yes. So let's imagine that he had a, an, an emotional and moral mellowing on the sexual question and the infidelity question and the abuse of an in, intern question. So there's been mellowing on that. Has there been a similar mellowing on the question of presidential lying and the extent to which and the fervor for uncovering it that he has? Does he still carry that? And the reason, of course, that's interesting is 
That's kind of a topic on our minds today about the current occupant of the office. And you can imagine a Democratic senator asking him about that and what lengths the judicial system, the congressional system, the governmental system should go to prove, ferret out, and otherwise make sure that the president is not lying. And it's harder, it seems to me, to make the case that you've mellowed on the question of lying, particularly if you're a judge up for the Supreme Court. Emily, can I ask you a question about this political aspect he has? So with Elena Kagan, Mitch McConnell and others said, we shouldn't put her on the court because she can't switch from the kind of political hat to the judge hat, that she's just too political. Okay. Because she'd so, been the solicitor, she had been the solicitor general. Let's just make right. That. She beca- right, and now Kavanaugh has had political offices and and much um, more time in government. Much more, yeah. right? So, what it would seem to me from the liberal perspective makes him more dangerous is that with all of that political upbringing, and in fact, maybe some of what you see in this memo is he's got a political instinct. He is moved and and uh, around by the political winds. He's not just a jurist off in in some ivory tower thinking dispassionately about the law. And therefore, as the crucial vote on the court um, for the conservative majority, he's going to do the the more political thing. This is I'm extrapolating here. But I guess my question is, the criteria for somebody who is in this position the way Bork was replacing Lewis Powell, who had a very Kennedy-like yeah. role on the court, was the fifth vote on the 5-4 decisions. Kennedy was the fifth vote in the 5-4. Biden, in Bork's case, basically said, look, there is a special standard for somebody who's going to come and be the vote that will change the course of the court because there are going to be these 4-4 splits and they will be the fifth vote. So this isn't just some justice. This is a justice coming in this kind of linchpin fashion. A, how do you argue that there is a special standard for the linchpin judge? And then B, is the political connection of a judge, uh, does that allow somebody to make a case? Look, they are more likely to make decisions that are going to have a political impact um, than your regular old garden variety justice. So I have so many thoughts about this. I'm so excited you asked me this question. (laughs) (laughs) Read Emily's great piece in The Times about this. Well, right. Yeah. It's related to this essay that that I wrote for The Times. Um, It's true. Uh, So, but here are some things that I don't think made it into that essay at all. So about the idea of judges who have experience in politics. I'm all for that. I think it's good for Supreme Court justices to have experiences of different branches of government. Sandra Day O'Connor was in the state legislature in Arizona. Earl Warren was the governor of California. Like, bring it on. I mean, part of the problem with the Supreme Court right now is that we have this cookie cutter resume standard, um, which is really narrow and boring and I don't think serves the court well. That said, um, your point about linchpin justices is really interesting. So when I was working on this essay, it's it's about um, what happens when the court moves seriously out of step with the country. Um, and I looked at the moments in history where that's happened and then tried to project forward about what could happen next. And one thing I learned that I hadn't appreciated is that since 1953, this is a long time, right? That's like almost in living memory of the court. There have been at least one, sometimes multiple justices who either were were swing justices, the ling- mm-hmm. linchpin figures you're talking about, people who could vote either way, were unpredictable ideologically and in terms of their partisan um, you know, appointment. There were there are five of those people, and there are five ideological drifters, people who like were appointed by one party, almost always they were appointed by Republicans, and they just became liberal. So one example of that is David Souter, um, probably the best known. 
Of the ideological drifter pool, interestingly, only one was appointed by a Democrat. Really, Byron White, who was appointed by President Kennedy, is the only one in that pool. So right. the point is that I think our whole conception of the court as a nonpartisan institution that does something called law, which is different from something called politics, has been shaped by – these justices, these unpredictable figures who did not behave in kind of part lockstep partisan fashion. And they reflected a different era of choosing nominees. I mean, until the Bork nomination in 1987, we don't have this really strong ideological intent of a president making a nomination going yeah. in. Now we're losing that. I mean, the Federalist Society has existed since the 80s to prevent the next David Souter and has been incredibly successful. And Brett Kavanaugh comes out of that um, juggernaut that the Federalist Society has built. And he is particularly unlikely to drift left because of what you were just talking about, John, um, which is to say that there's some research by Lee Epstein, one of my favorite, the sort of indispensable researcher about the Supreme Court. She did this study with some other people. And what they looked at was if you had experience as an official in the federal government, did that have an effect on how likely you were to move away from mm -hmm. the party that nominated you in your rulings? And the answer was you were less likely to drift. And so that's like yet another reason why the Federalist Society, I think, is very, very competent that it has picked someone who is going to deliver solid right-wing votes and an intellectual prowess on the court. Because Kavanaugh is like, has is, you know, he knows how to do this stuff well, and he's going to be able to bring that intellectual pressure to bear um, in a way that will be very helpful to the conservative wing, I think. So so the drifters would be Stevens, Blackman, Souter, Powell, and Kennedy? The drift... Oh, do you want me to... I mean, I can find the... Hold on. O'Connor feels like a, a swing, not a drifter. Yeah. The platters. Who are the drifters, the platters, the Vandellas. Okay. The drifters are William Brennan, Harry Blackman, David Souter... Earl Warren and John Paul Stevens. The people I counted as swing voters um, were Byron White, Lewis Powell, Potter Stewart, um, and Sandra Day O'Connor, as well as Justice Kennedy himself. So that's interesting because somebody like Powell, who may not have drifted 80% of the time voting with the conservatives, on the 20% of the time he voted with the liberals, it was hugely, you know, prayer in school, abortion. So, you know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> more powerful and important in the same way Kennedy was, yeah, but hadn't gone through a massive ideological switch. So I'm just thinking in terms of the – I mean, I, obviously conservatives want to stop both. Um, right, uh, but what's but, amazing about this list of people when you think about it – right, because I was separating the drifters from the swing voters, and yet – the swing voters like Powell, I mean, in some instances, like Kennedy, certainly like O'Connor, um, did things that were very consequential for keeping the court on a kind of moderate liberal path, right? And that's why I feel like they've had outsized influence both on the law yes. and also on the public's perception of the court as this nonpartisan, um, above politics institution. And yet, you know, nine of 10 of them did things that the Republican president who appointed them would have been upset by. Like, absolutely, they were not 
picks in the mold of Alito, of Thomas, of John Roberts, of of Kavanaugh, of every conservative who is currently on the court or about to be on the court. Uh, I loved your framing, Emily. One thing I learned that I hadn't appreciated, which feels very much my experience with the Bork um, studying I've been doing recently, was the way in which the Reagan administration in specific, we'd had presidents who tried to do sort of their personal political things with the court before, but it, it was different in kind of what you're describing the Federalist Society to do doing and what feels like it really gets its birth in the Mies um, Justice Department under Reagan, which is using judicial picks to basically keep the supporters from culture and value voters as a political matter, keeping those voters excited and and using it as a as a kind of promise kept to them. So we can't get rid of abortion through legislative means, but uh, elect Republicans and we'll do it through the courts. That feels like it takes on the a real acceleration under under Reagan, which then takes us all the way to the delay of Merrick Garland, which is essentially elect uh, elect a Republican because you'll put somebody on the court. That that becomes the the just the furtherance of a, a mixing of a systemic mixing of politics and the judiciary that kind of begins under Reagan. Oh, absolutely. And you're totally right that it begins under Reagan. I mean, one of the most important facts to remember about Roe versus Wade is that in 1973, it was seven to two of those seven, five of the justices had been appointed by Republicans, including two by President Nixon. I mean, we are talking about what looked like a bipartisan consensus turning into the biggest wedge issue for the right by the Reagan era. And then I think you're absolutely right, propelling presidential politics in this um, specific and incredibly useful way um, to conservative politicians. Now, of course, the question is going to be, if and when um, the court either kind of guts Roe or overturns it, will the Republican Party be the dog that cut the, caught the mail truck? Because then the utility of the court as um, a single voting issue for the right may um, may just really change because the left is energized or because people don't actually really want abortion to be illegal um, and all the things that will flow from that. I mean, one fascinating uh, data point in all of this is that Roe versus Wade is currently polling with more support than it ever has. It's at 71 percent. 71 percent of respondents say they do not want Roe versus Wade Roe versus Wade overturned. All right. Uh, just to bring us back to to Kavanaugh, final final uh, question for you guys, which is there is, I think, ambivalence in the Democratic caucus about what should happen with Kavanaugh. I mean, one school of thought says, you know, you have to oppose him. He's he's bad on ideological grounds. President Trump is illegitimate, doesn't legitimately deserve this. Mitch McConnell deserved to be punished for an appointment. So anything we can do to delay or stop this nomination, we should do, even if it pushes it past the election, uh, we should do that. Another school of thought uh, says, no, let's get this. We're going to lose this battle. There's going to be a conservative justice on the court. Kavanaugh isn't great. Whoever they got instead of him wouldn't be great. We're not going to have the capacity to stop this anyway. And and if we if if the Supreme Court justice the Supreme Court nomination is a live issue going to the election, if there isn't a new justice on the court, then that's going to be galvanizing for Republican voters who are going to remember, oh, that's the reason why 
we support Republicans anyway, is to keep this court in our acute court sympathetic to us. And, and so Democrats should just, uh, while making noises about Kavanaugh, should just let the thing go through as quickly as possible, essentially. So, and also not force people like Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp to take really diff- a really difficult vote where they, they might have to block, be the person who blocks uh, Kavanaugh before the election. So, John, do you think, do you think there's, a, uh, there's a view the Democrats should have about which is, which is more advantageous to them? I have no idea um, because of for this reason. Um, I mean, it's interesting, but it's very hard to get everybody to collectively restrain their impulses. And the impulses are to fight back against uh, a, a, a court pick that's so important. Going back to Bork quickly, after Bork is named 45 minutes later, Ted Kennedy comes out and just savages him with a very famous uh, uh, speech about what the world under uh, Robert Bork would look like. This was, on the one hand, everybody thought a horrible political move because there were a bunch of conservative Democratic senators who who wanted to vote against Bork, who could be convinced to vote against Bork, but they couldn't do it if it was seen as you know, somebody Ted Kennedy hated so vociferously because they had a bunch of conservative voters in their states. Um, So they couldn't look like they were just doing the super liberal thing. What liberals would say is absolutely not. Ted Kennedy came out, said, screw the tactics. We need to be loud and um, and and put down the stake in the ground right away about how how much of a threat um, Justice Bork, uh, Judge Bork would be, um, and that that's why in the end he loses 58 to 42. I think you can argue Do you think that's right, though, ways. John? I mean, didn't Judge Bork destroy himself by being so supercilious yeah. and B- preach and lecturing and also unwilling to in any way do what everybody has done since then, yeah. which is you trim your sails and you don't right. answer well, the questions? Right. Well, that's the ultimate outcome. I was just, I'm <laughs> I'm still in the first episode. Oh, no, the, um No, but, but at the beginning, right when Bork is named and in fact right even before he's named all of the liberal groups come out and it puts the democrats in this bit of a bind they're in the majority and they're trying to get the conservative democrats to be against bork but kennedy's immediate uh, vociferous fighting against him makes it hard to get those howell heflin's richard shelby types on board at first then you're right what happens is that ultimately bork um helps the democratic case and there's a lot of you know the, at that point the the liberal groups move in kind of behind him and add to the energy but i think it is generally the view that yes he didn't help himself on the on the on the uh in his hearings and that's why six republicans voted against him I mean, I have two thoughts about your question, David. One is that I think that the hearings, even though they are incredibly frustrating and frankly horrible because the whole game is that the nominee doesn't answer the questions in a substantive way, despite all of that, the moment of a Supreme Court nomination is a really important one for um, both parties to get their people to think about why the law matters, why the judiciary matters, to get them to care about the court. And because the left has uh, traditionally cared less and less effectively about the court, I don't think the Democrats, just speaking politically, should, you know, like let this sail through and not make a big big deal about what a shift this is going to be on the court because it's really going to be a big shift. But shouldn't it be let, like make a big deal about it, like be really outraged, asking very hard questions and then get the vote done by October 5th? Well, I mean, I think that uh, if if there was a way like I'm generally not in favor of like the suicide vote where you ask Joe Manchin or Heidi Heidkamp to take a big hit unless there's a real chance in blocking Kavanaugh. If there's a real chance in blocking Kavanaugh. That's a whole different ballgame. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When 
you're sitting watching the Kavanaugh hearings on the couch, fascinated with the Kavanaugh hearings. You're sucking down. A, oh no, what did what is it that Michael Cohen had? He had a a something Glenn Livet twelve or something. Is I don't that what know. It was, John? That seems when you're having when you're having your we your should all have old, a Michael Cohen. There should be a new when, drink. Exactly. When you're having your Michael Cohen, uh, Emily the Baz, what are you going to be chattering about? I was watching with um, a lot of interest this week a story out of Georgia about the county uh, government's efforts to shut down seven of nine polling places in a majority African-American part of the county. And the part of this that really got me was using the Americans with Disabilities Act as an excuse for closing down these polling places. I mean, there's just something so... um, tragic about the idea of pitting protections for people with disabilities and access against um, access to the polls for a largely African-American electorate. I just there's it's like some there's something some way in which (laughs) that captures what's wrong for me about this moment in politics. And then, of course, it plays into a history of voter suppression in Georgia, which the Republican candidate for governor, who was the secretary of state, Brian Kemp, was very much a part of. And then also this larger pattern we've seen of, um, I think the number is 868 polling places have closed throughout the South since the Supreme Court made it much easier for local governments, largely but not entirely in the South, to um, make all kinds of changes that affect um, how easy it is for people to vote. And that was a court uh, decision from 2013, Shelby County versus Holder. At that moment, Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote the majority decision, said things have changed in the South. We don't need all these extra protections anymore in which the Department of Justice had to be notified and approved when you did something like close a polling place or change the shape of a district. And you know, losing that um, that guardrail has turned out to be really significant. There was an amazing detail I was reading in one of the stories about the the county, which was the they, so they 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 are closing these seven polling places because of supposed ADA restrictions, ADA violations, and they have no evidence right. of ADA violations. They didn't bother to document it at all. There's literally no documentation to show that in fact these polling places are have ADA problems. Right. And uh, apparently the allegations about the ADA problems are six years old and they've used the polling places this whole time, including for the Republican primary that Brian Kemp won. It just, <laughs> yeah. Uh, John Dickerson, what is your chatter? My chatter is about a great story in Wired, the untold story of the NotPetya virus, the most devastating cyber attack in history. It's written by Andy Greenberg. And one of my favorite details in the piece, um, which is basically, you know, this virus affected companies all over the world. Um, but one of the major companies that it uh, affected was Maersk. And um, basically what happens is when it hits, all of the screens on the Maersk network just go black. It's devastating. And they're trying to figure out how to... Um, how to recoup and how to fix it. And what they realize when they're trying to figure out how to um, unwind this virus from their network is that basically the backups of the entire network were all on the servers that were connected to the virus that had been hit by the virus. So there is no virus and there's no computer on the entire network that hasn't been uh, affected by this virus. But then finally they find it turns out Luckily, that one computer in the network had gone offline. There had been a power outage. It is in Ghana. Um, so uh, they basically, Maersk is in, is in London. They find it's in Ghana, and essentially 
they like quarantine this one computer in Ghana, but then they find out that they can't. So they they try and revive the entire massive network from this one tiny computer. But it turns out that you can't get very good bandwidth in Ghana. So they have to fly the the hard drive back. But they the the uh, IT guy in Ghana doesn't have the right kind of visas. So they have to basically set up this daisy chain of handing the domain controller from like airport to airport to finally get it back to the UK so that they can turn their um so they can turn their network back on. Uh anyway, it's a great little detail in an amazing story of what a catastrophic, you know, historically large cyber attack uh really looks like from the inside. Yeesh. Uh so my chatter, I'm going to do my chatter and then I'll do a listener chatter. Uh my chatter is in praise of this wonderful show, Making It, which I don't know if you guys have had the chance to watch, which is Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman, uh, two stars of, of Parks and Rec. They have done a, a great British baking show knockoff, but about people making crafts, essentially. So it's a craft competition show. Uh, Simon Doonan of Slate is one of the judges, and it is the loveliest, most warm bath you know, delicious drink, hot soup, uh, jolly, good-natured show you could possibly find. It is, it, it, it is, if you have any doubts about the human spirit, if you want to, like, just feel good and spend time in the company of people who are good-natured and warm-hearted and funny and charming, uh, you've got to see the show. It's called Making It. I know it's been, I'm the last person to praise it. It's been praised widely everywhere, but it, it has so much good heart and charm to it. So watch Making It. And then, listener chatters, again, listeners, you guys have such great chatter ideas. Another banana-rama round this week of incredible ideas. <laughs> so uh, you, you've been tweeting at us at Slate Gabfest, and, and uh, it's just, you know, with great articles to read and, you know, thing events that we should know about and historical episodes that, that you want to comment on. And you have also found a Wired article. So Andy O at, at Alchemist's Cave on Twitter tweeted us about the Forrest Fenn online treasure mystery. And it's a one a Wired story, which, which is the latest to, to chronicle this strange story out of the West where a very rich uh, antiques uh, dealer named Forrest Fenn has said he has buried a treasure chest somewhere in the West. And he published a poem, which allegedly offered clues to the location of the chest. And now hundreds, thousands of people are engaged in a search, a real-world search, to find this chest filled with $2 million of jewels. There have been deaths, multiple deaths. There's just people acting in really crazy, dangerous, and sick ways to try to find this chest. It's a very disturbing story in Wired. So check it out. Uh, and thanks to Andy O for sending it to us. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher, Izzy Road, is is under the weather. So feel better, Izzy. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. 
my colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 